Welcome to the Air Health, Our Health podcast. I'm Erica, a lung and ICU doctor. Every day in my ICU and clinic, I see patients who are there from breathing unhealthy air. And I started Air Health, Our Health to focus more upstream on the importance of healthy air for healthy people and healthy economies. Thanks for joining me. I remember feeling relief and joy at receiving my first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine on December 21st last year. It felt like a Christmas present, light in the darkness of the horrific COVID surge, which was taking away so many in my ICU and community. I couldn't wait for my parents, my husband, and the world to receive the vaccine so we could emerge from the pandemic. I was excited by the technology that provided hope for future pandemics and encouraged by the fantastic safety profile the vaccines had in the trials. I was not alone. All of my physician colleagues who work with me in the ICU have been vaccinated. In fact, our leadership had to stagger us out over three weeks to ensure that we all didn't go on the same day and get a fever or something that kept us from work. I know some of my colleagues assigned to the third week were a bit bummed that they had to wait. Outpatient doctors were texting and calling all around to figure out which hospital vaccination program could get them in soonest. By June, over 96% of physicians in the U.S. were vaccinated, and the number is now likely higher. I had not realized the extent to which so many would not share this enthusiasm. I and many of my colleagues, and likely many of you, have struggled to communicate effectively about the COVID-19 vaccines, to address questions and concerns about safety, VAERS, the cloud of conspiracy theories, and more, which we will cover in this episode. Today, I am delighted to be joined by two experts in their fields, Dr. Gigi Gronval and Destiny Amen. Dr. Gronval is an immunologist and a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. She received her PhD from Johns Hopkins University and worked as a protein chemist at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She was a National Research Council postdoctoral associate at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases and is now an expert in biosecurity and bioterrorism and has written extensively about the biosafety, ethics, and technical and social risks of public health interventions for national security. She is a member of the Novel and Exceptional Technology and Research Advisory Committee and has served as a member of the Threat Reduction Advisory Committee, providing the Secretary of Defense with independent advice and recommendations on reducing risks to the United States, its military forces, and allies. In addition to being a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Dr. Gronval is an associate editor of the journal Health Security, formerly Biosecurity and Bioterrorism. Destiny Amen is a behavioral science and risk communication expert running JPoint Collaborative with over 20 years of experience translating science into practical solutions to improve resilience at individual, community, and national levels. Her research has centered on developing and promoting creative adaptations to environmental risks, including natural hazards like wildfires and flooding, and now the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. She has previously worked supporting FEMA and the CDC and is now working with clean air scientists and engineers from Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and the Integrated Bioscience and the Built Environment Consortium to develop and execute new guidelines and protocols for churches, schools, and other public places during the pandemic. Welcome both of you to the Air Health, Our Health podcast. Today, we're going to talk about vaccination. So what drives and influences vaccination behavior and how we can more effectively engage with the people in our lives who are reluctant about the COVID-19 vaccination. And so, you know, I really want to thank both of you for being here because I feel that as a physician, I constantly operate at this kind of intersection between science and then people's lived experience and kind of the real world and how science unfolds in the mess of our lives. And I'm always trying to have to boil down studies and you know, information about medications to help advise people what to actually put into their bodies and how to change their own behavior. And this COVID-19 vaccination rollout has just been astonishing to me for both the heights of scientific achievement, um, as well as the challenge of the ability to actually help people feel comfortable with this um, life-saving intervention. And so the goal of this podcast is to kind of help marry the science with the communication a bit. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. So first, Dr. Gronval, can you talk to us about the science of these vaccines? So how do we know they work? How do we know they're safe? So we know that they work because um, the people who have been vaccinated um, have you know, done very well when they've been exposed to, to the virus. So um, take that on, an, uh, that's on an individual level, but then you put it into a study where millions of people are involved and you see much lower rates of COVID infection and many fewer hospitalizations and certainly deaths um, than you do in unvaccinated populations. And this um, has been replicated all over the world where you see this effect in controlled studies of looking at people who have gotten the vaccine and generally do so much better than people who have not. Yeah, and, um, and then how do we know 
that they're safe. I think sometimes people imagine that they have some way, some system in their life where they can protect themselves and their families from getting COVID, that they have the secret sauce that's going to make it work and that they're only just assuming the risk of the vaccine with no sense of benefit. For, for, for those people, um, right. how do they know that even if they didn't get COVID, that getting the vaccine is safe? Sure. So, well, when the vaccines were first rolled out um, to the general public, they they had to undergo a process of uh, clinical trials. And so this is a phased approach where they start um, in early uh, uh, studies looking at, you know, just a, a few thousand people and then the trials get bigger and bigger. Um, and, and so those people are carefully looked at to make sure that there are no um, or that they document every single type of adverse event, whether it's related to the vaccine or not, um, so that they can compile the statistics um, about what is and is not um, going to happen to you if you get the vaccine. But um, you know, not only do we have that clinical trial data at this point, but we have the many millions of Americans who have gotten the vaccine already. And, um, and so we have a very good picture of what um, what you can expect after vaccination, um, usually with any sort of like when you see FDA um, or when you see like commercials for drugs on TV, um, they'll give you that list of like side effects at the end. Mm -hmm. Like this could cause like all these kinds of you know uh, calamities. TB. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And and you know it's easy to kind of joke about that, but those are you know those that list is the result of you know of studies carefully you know done studies where they look to see um, if there are any adverse events of this drug, um, and if the balance is you know it's better to have that drug versus to, to for your condition versus not having it. And um, even if there are side effects. So, I mean, I think people are used to hearing about that, but what is so unusual about the, these vaccines is just how few side effects there actually are. And um, compared to almost anything in my career, there, I, it's hard to come up with another vaccine that has fewer side effects and has greater efficacy. And I, um, you know, it's just, uh, there, there are definitely side effects. Everybody knows that uh, somebody who has gotten vaccinated and felt crummy the next day um, and or had ran a, a small temperature um, or had headaches. So these are the, those are the, some of the most common side effects. Um, but even that, those side effects typically only affect, um, you know, less than half of the people who get the vaccine. And I've had many people um, who, who have told me like, you know, Gigi, what's my, what's the problem? Because like, I didn't feel anything. I didn't have any side effects. And, and is it, you know, is it maybe that the vaccine didn't work? Did I get a bad batch? And it's like, no, no, no. like more than half of people like feel nothing. And, and so, um, so that's, you know, that's the picture for, for these vaccines. They, they've been extraordinary in, in how well they work and how few problems they cause. And Destiny, is there anything you wanted to add from a communications standpoint about vaccine safety? Yeah. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping in this conversation that Gigi and I can kind of do a little bit of a dance between the, the physical dynamic and then sort of what kinds of threads we can pull from the human side to help kind of punch up or find things that maybe haven't been as emphasized that might affect people. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, uh, that context later, but I have a question for Gigi. So when you talk about the, um, the side effects, I've actually found when I've been talking with people that it helps to dig into that a little bit more to talk about how the mRNA vaccines, and maybe this is in part because I'm kind of a science nerd and I'm, I, I have other people in my life who are sort of science nerds-ish, right? Um, even vaccine hesitant people who believe it or not are science nerds. Um, and uh, talking about how frankly cool the mRNA technology is and how it flushes out of your body within you know hours to days that you're, there's no trace that's sort of left behind in terms of the actual mRNA vaccine. And that's part of the reason why we're seeing, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but that's part of the reason why we're seeing such low rates of side effects, because in the past, vaccines have been made in all, you know, throughout history in different ways, some of which are kind of 
weird, frankly. And these are like the laser beam of vaccines. Like they're so precise. They're going right after specifically what your immune system needs to know and recognize about the virus. There's not a bunch of extra weird, you know, ingredients and stuff involved. And it's really cool. Um, and I wondered if, if that's something that um, might be emphasized for people. It does trigger potentially in some folks a feeling of like, ooh, this feels futuristic and weird. And I don't know if I like that. But um, talking a little bit more in depth about the actual mRNA and how it works seems to be helping people relax around it a little bit. So I wondered if you could dig in there a little bit more about how that works. Sure. So, um, well, two of the vaccines that are authorized and uh, one approved in the US um, are, uh, they use mRNA. And um, mRNA, if you remember from, um, from biology class, um, if you had it, there's DNA, which is the blueprint of the cell and then codes all this, the things in your body. And, and um, so there, that's DNA. And then RNA is made from DNA. And that's kind of like the working copy. Um, and uh, so mRNA is, is a type of messenger RNA. It's a type of RNA that um, is found in the cytoplasm of the cell. So not in the nucleus where the DNA is. And um, so, so the, that's where proteins, proteins are made from the RNA. And uh, so the mRNA vaccine, it, uh, it, um, proteins are made from the, the RNA. So it's using that working copy to make some proteins that um, happen to be proteins that are found in the virus um, spike protein um, from the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID. So it's like a piece um, uh, so your body makes a protein that is a, like a piece of the virus, and it's the piece that's very important that you build an immune response to. So that part, it educates your immune system to react to the spike protein of the virus so that when you are infected with the actual virus, um, your body is like, oh, I've seen this before. I know what to do and marshals all your immune system to stop that virus from making a gazillion copies of itself and, um, and making you sick. So that's kind of how it works. Um, it's, it's, uh, you're, you're in, when you get the vaccine, you're injected with a tiny um, piece of the RNA um, that is found in the virus and then you make proteins to it and then you're, and that educates your immune system. So in a way, it's kind of like saying you're, uh, you know, giving your immune system like a blueprint for how to defeat the virus and then kind of flushing the blueprints out, but they, the immune system still remembers how to defeat the virus. Is that is that right. simplified but accurate? <laughs> yeah, I mean, RNA um, of all types, including the RNA found in this vaccine, doesn't hang around a long time in your body, and that's why um, you know it's it's DNA that is that is much more of you know the that's why they call it the blueprint, and everything else is just your working copy, and the working copies are are often you know they don't hang around long, and then they're flushed out of your body. So that's um, that's the story there. So when you're vaccinated, um, you know it's, it's, it's a, it's a short period of time. Um, it's a critical time so that your immune system can get educated, but it's, um, but it does, you know, it doesn't hang around for very long. And one of the things I remind I, patients of is this is why it has to be deep frozen, right? It's because it's, it's so yeah. transient, right? It's like, it's deep frozen and I call it a chocolate chip cookie, right? It's like fat, sugar, and salt. It's just like deep frozen in that put it in you because it's going to be so ephemeral, right? It's like your body's going to start making some proteins and then that, you know, that it's just going to kind of go away. Like that's why we had to deep freeze it and do this whole cold storage technology is because yeah, there's no fragile. preservatives. Yeah. It's I love that fragile. analogy. <laughs> when I was, uh, you mentioned I was a protein chemist a long time ago. Um, and one of the things that I did, it was to make DNA and RNA for people to, um, to use in their research. And RNA was actually just the biggest pain to work with because your your everything you touch, uh, your skin is filled with RNAs, things that degrade RNA. And RNA is so fragile that it just doesn't hang around anywhere for very long. And so it, it requires a lot of care to be able to, to hold on to it. I have a follow-up question because I think um, 
often what's happened when I've talked about and PS, I personally use a Star Wars reference when I talk about the blueprints for the RNA. So if you if you have any Star Wars fans out there, that can be a great way to connect with them that like remember when Leia had access to R2D2 and there was the plans for the Death Star and it was like exactly how to defeat the Death Star. That's how I tell the story myself. So um, feel free to take that and run with it if it's helpful for your audience. Um, another question that folks have come up with is this feeling of like, but this is so new, it's way too new. I know I've been telling people the that the, and tell me if this is accurate, um, that the, you know, the research that underpins all of this has been ongoing for at least a decade, right? So it's not like new in the sense that, oh, hey, we have a pandemic, let's get a bunch of scientists in a lab and now we have this new thing we're gonna inject everybody with. It, it, is that accurate? Oh yeah, I mean, science is incremental and, um, and there's lots of different, um, you know, work on actual mRNA vaccines has been going on for years. Um, this has been the, the opportunity to actually use what we've learned, that's for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, there has been, there, there, this work has, you know, been going on for decades. Um, it was a lot more pie in the sky when I was in graduate school, some, you know, a couple decades ago, but, um, but, you know, it was still being worked on. Um, you wouldn't have what we have today if it wasn't for all the steady work that's been going on for many years and, and also learning from past viruses that are similar um, with SARS in 2003 and MERS, um, you know, we, we, we've experienced other similar types of viruses and have learned how they can be defeated. Yeah, I remember working with RNA in a uh, CML research lab um, while I was listening to a Science Friday talking about potential mRNA vaccines and my experiment was going nowhere. I just kept, it kept degrading, it kept not working. And I was thinking, yeah, right, good luck. So this is a miracle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it I doesn't think work until is... it does. Yeah, so that's, uh, you just don't know if you're gonna be the one in whose hands it, you know, you have to figure it out, but that's why we do the research. And it's not, it's often very tedious and takes a lot of, lot of blood, sweat and tears. I do think from a conversational impact too, and I wanna say this specifically to the listeners because it sounds like you have a lot of folks who are you know, either sort of science educated or work in the medical field or whatever, your enthusiasm around stuff like this is, you know, enthusiasm in general is contagious. And part of the problem with this conversation is that it's so negative, right? It's like, oh, bad things are happening and oh, there's stuff and it's scary and I don't understand and there's too many things. But if you can find places like that where you are genuinely kind of enthused and excited to share that's a great way to connect with people. Um, it's not gonna hit everybody certainly, but certainly someone you're in relationship with cares about how you feel. And if you're excited, genuinely excited to share information about something, they may be more open to hearing it from you as a person, however flawed you might be describing why, you know, why you're stoked about it. That can still be more effective even than like the, you know, the, the footnotiest, you know, research paper. So just a tip there. You mean I should share that I teared up when I saw the first New England Journal of Medicine curves when I saw the placebo arms and the vaccinated arms separating <laughs> in the middle of a surge where I didn't know if I was going to make it through Christmas? <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. All that personal stuff matters a lot in terms of connecting with people on a human level. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is true. I have come to realize that a lot of the times, you know, patients will just say, oh, I don't know, like, what do you think I should do? Or when I'm helping people decide, you know, whether what to do in the ICU. And then pe sometimes people just say, you know, well, what would you do if it was your dad? And, you know, that's kind of like the ethical standard I try to hold myself to a lot of the time is, you know, there's all this information out there. Nothing is perfect. Nothing is certain. What would I do if it was my loved one? Right. And I think mm -hmm. um, that's sometimes what I end up boiling it down to. And then, you know, people say, okay, give me a flu shot. <laughs> that's actually a great example. And I'll pull that thread a little bit later, but of the power of relationship, right? Because here you have, you're having this interaction with a patient and you're giving them all the facts, but that's not enough for them to make a decision. And when they're asking for you to say what, what you would do if it was them or if it was your father or something, they're really asking to connect with you on a human level as a, as a person and to feel like they, they, they can't quite, you know, find a place for the information you're giving them to, until they have that personal emotional connection with you. And so it's a great example of what we need to do in our conversations more broadly with folks around this topic, 
connecting with them personally first so that it's kind of becomes the envelope for the information that makes it a lot easier for people to hear it. You mean people don't just like to be beaten over the head with facts? I mean, you'd almost think that way based on how we are talking about the vaccine a lot of times these days. (laughs) Well, and then we mentioned things, um, you know, there's a lot of questions that people say, well, wouldn't it, if it's going to hit everybody, isn't it better that I get it naturally? Wouldn't natural immunity be better, even better than a vaccine? Um, Or sometimes people say, well, I already had COVID, so I don't need to get vaccinated. Would you mind addressing that from a scientific standpoint, Dr. Gronval? Sure. Um, So the first thing um, is just, you know, as a scientist to have to say, like, you know, not everything natural is good. Like lots of terrible things happen that are, that are natural. Um, um, but, you know, as far as like natural immunity goes, um, that's not really, um, it hasn't been really a, a concept, um, you know, so, well, let me, let me back up. So when you are, um, when you're get, when you get infected by a virus, um, doesn't have to be COVID, but it's true with COVID, um, that virus just aims to make as many copies of itself as possible and, and transmit to another, to another uh, host. Um, that's that's what it's doing. Your body um, is under assault, and a lot of viruses um, try and and make is they have mechanisms to defeat your immune response so that they can more effectively make lots of copies of itself and go to the next host, and that's how they um, have evolved. So a lot of viruses, um, including SARS-CoV-2. Um, actually take down your immune system in various ways to prevent you from being able to fight that fight it off and um, and so you know everybody knows famously with HIV AIDS how that works um, that you know the your immune system is decimated by by the virus but you know lots of other viruses have little tricks up their sleeves that um, manage to you know just, make your immune system do the wrong thing, um, but but slow it down in various ways so that it can make lots of copies of itself and go to the next person. And, um, and so that's, uh, that's what the virus is doing. What the vaccine is doing is basically educating your immune system so that, you know, it's ready. It's like an exercise. It's like a, an educational program, whatever your metaphor you want to use, it's getting your immune system all lined up and ready for that assault. So most people, I mean, the ideal situation is that you will not need your vaccine, that you're not going to get exposed, but if you do get exposed and that virus does breach the castle walls, your immune system is ready because it's gonna take that virus down and stop it from making all those copies of itself. And that's why it's really much better to be vaccinated because you're a healthy person getting infected with that virus and you're gonna shut it down. Whereas when you get infected naturally and then like, you know, then your immune system is like, what, what's going on here? And then it takes days. And then, you know, if you're lucky, your immune system will manage to do the job, but you might be really sick by that point and, um, or, you know, worse. And so, um, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, yes, a lot of times people get infected naturally and then they end up becoming more immune to the virus. So if they get it again, they, uh, they get exposed again, they won't get infected. They won't, they won't get sick, but that's not, um, that's not really the best process. It's better to give your immune system a fighting chance to be able to take this down. When it comes to getting vaccinated after getting exposed or already, if you've had COVID, you think, oh, I've already had it. I'm all set. I don't need to do anything. Well, you know, you don't really know what you're going to actually get exposed to. And um, with these variants going around, um, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's been demonstrated to be more uh, effective to get that vaccine on top of your natural, naturally acquired immunity. And, um, you know, your immune system could use the refresher. Um, you have, uh, you, you're giving yourself tools to fight the virus should, be, should you get exposed. And um, you know the, the vaccines are safe and effective, and it's been demonstrated that people do better when they have had the vaccine. Now there is some debate in the scientific community over whether you need both doses of the mRNA vaccine um, if you've already had COVID. I you know I I kind of look at it like well you know to say that you're fully vaccinated you have to demonstrate that you've had two doses you might as well just go for it if you're going to have one. 
But, um, but that's where the debate is, whether or not it's useful to have both doses, not to have just one. I have a question for you, Gigi, on that. Um, so one question, I, one, something I read early on in the pandemic it was that depending on how you were exposed to the virus might influence your experience of the virus. So as opposed to some other disease where like you get it, you get it all the way. With COVID-19, you actually might have like a light exposure that only activates part of your immune system and doesn't give you as much of a boost versus like a really heavy exposure if you're you know, ex exposed to those virus particles for longer. Is that, is that, has that been proven out as well? Is that something that we can say too? So that's the kind of like a, like a dose sort of dosing issue, right? So um, like we all know that, you know, if you drink one glass of water, that's great. If you drank like 10 gallons of water, that would be terrible. Um, you know, so it, de it depends, you know, even something that's good, it could be like toxic in different amounts. And uh, so that's kind of where that thinking comes from. And that does work with pathogens as well. You might get a uh, light exposure to something and it might not um, be as effective. It might not make you as sick as if you got a big, you know, big dose of something. Um, but that's hard. That's, that's not always the case. And it's also really hard to, to test. Like for well, some diseases, you can like, you can deliberately infect somebody with 10 times the amount as, uh, or, you know, you can, you could do different doses of virus. You're not doing that with COVID because we have no cure. <laughs> so, so, but it could be a useful rhetorical device because, um, for example, I have a friend who had a friend who had tested for antibodies. He did it. He did his antibody test and he has antibodies. So he's had COVID. And so she's like, why should he get the vaccine? Right. And my response was that it, depending on, he might have an antibody test that shows up, yes, but our immune systems are more than just antibodies. And that in fact, he may have had a light dose or a medium dose or something like that. And there's no real way of knowing that in terms of natural immunity. So it'd be better to get a vaccine because you at least then know your immune system's been given a certain like minimum level of necessary exposure so that you can say this person is protected for a certain period of time. Does that hold up? Well, sort of. Let me just get back up with the antibody test for a second. Um, depending on when the, this person got an antibody test, um, the, the answer that they got may or may not be accurate. Um, there was a time early on in the pandemic, especially when it was really a wild west um, when it came to antibody tests. And you could flip a coin and get a better result, um, a more accurate result from the test than, uh, than many of the tests that were on the market. And I'm not kidding. And it was, uh, it was pretty disastrous. So a lot of people um, thought that they had not had COVID um, when they probably did um, and, uh, or the other way around. And, and people acted, took that information, ran with it. And that's not good. That's not good. Um, so, so the antibody test may or may not have been accurate. So that's number one. Um, number two, yeah, we don't really, um, sometimes people have had mild cases um, and then have gone on to have very severe cases and the reverse. So I don't think you can really say that, um, that you, know, you are setting yourself up for um, success or failure based on your early experience with COVID. In general, there's a lot we don't know about this disease. And, um, and so, um, and people change all the time. People's own personal risk factors change all the time. People might be, you know, have different health considerations now than they did two years ago. Um, so in general, the vaccine is, you know, is the way to go to make sure that you're uh, setting yourself up for as much success as you possibly can have if you get exposed. And I think, um, you know, now that we are having such widespread vaccination, obviously, you know, the way, you know, vaccine adverse events are reported, you know, there are careful surveillance systems. And I think a lot of people um, are concerned, you know, because they'll hear someone got a vaccine and then maybe someone died, you know, a month later or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about how we monitor vaccine safety and, you know, what it means if something's reported to VAERS, the vaccine adverse events reporting system and what that means or not? Because I think, you know, there's a lot of transparency with data, but I think sometimes when people don't know how to frame it, it can be really overwhelming. Right, right. Yeah, this is a complicated issue. So um, when 
Um, when you are in the beginning stages of, you know, before uh, the vaccine, a vaccine gets rolled out to the public um, and you're doing these clinical trials and everybody is very carefully looked at to make sure that they can catalog like all the potential adverse events that occur. Like that's how we, we have the percentage of people who have headaches or the people who, um, you know, feel like malaise or crummy the next day after getting a vaccine. But you know, the vaccine trials only took place in a few hundred thousand people. And a hundred thousand, a few hundred thousand people sounds like a whole lot. But statistically, you know, if somebody um, is going to have an adverse reaction that's like a one in a million or one in five million um, type of event, um, then you're not going to find that if you're only testing a few hundred thousand people. And, um, and so that's why there, you have to continue to monitor for safety even after the vaccine or drug or whatever it is, is rolled out to the public because it's not until you start seeing million, millions of people getting a particular drug or vaccine that you're going to see these one in a million or one in 10 million um, side effects. And so, um, so that's that's what was done with these uh, with the COVID vaccines, um, and you know that's uh, and there are lots of different reporting systems to be able to look for these extremely rare uh, event adverse events. Well, one of those um, reporting systems is like a self-reporting system. So it's it's uh, trying to make sure that all adverse events are captured, and physicians or people anybody can submit um, their adverse reaction to this database. And um, physicians have to do this. Um, so like if they find out that somebody is a, um, has gotten a vaccine and um, dies of a heart attack the next day or a week later, it, has, it could go into, into bears. And so, um, so it's recorded. Now, was that, do you know if that heart attack had anything to do with the vaccine? No, but, um, but you know, you have to document all of these adverse events so that, you know, when you're looking in some of them and they get investigated um, to make sure that they are or are not part of the vaccine itself. So um, lots of people die and have terrible things happen to them on a regular basis. It's just unfortunately part of life. Um, you could find out to get a vaccine today, a flu shot today, and tomorrow find out you have cancer. And you know, and that is that is terrible. But it was it related to the vaccine? No. So I mean, so that's why you have to have these reporting systems that are very generous in the amount of data that they collect. You know, they're just very open. Um, but unfortunately, that makes them very easy to manipulate because um, you know there are lots of people who um, who will take this data and say, oh well, you know, five thousand people died in the in the month after you know they got a vaccine or whatever the number is. Well, you know, five thousand people may have died that month, you know, regardless. And so the next step is, does it have anything to do with the vaccine? Yes or no. And so um, at this point um, with the millions upon millions of people that have gotten these vaccines, um, we could say that the, the list of, of, you know, serious adverse events are, are extremely low. And, um, and you've already heard about some of them. The, uh, very, very rare cases of myocarditis, for example, um, and things like that. But, you know, that's, uh, that's just, you know, what happens. Yeah. And I have to say, it made me very impressed with our surveillance system when they pulled out that extremely rare clotting disorder with the J and J yes. vaccine. And rapidly we got in for like, I was working in the ICU and I, I, you know, got my CME up to date on, you know, these central venous clots in the brain and like refreshed myself on, you know, okay, let's not, we're not use heparin for this one. I mean, it was, it made me feel a lot better about how well monitored and, and how safe these vaccines must be. Um, I was very impressed yes. with our reverse system in the real world. I mean, that's what we have you, I mean, there, you have no choice but to kind of commit to that sort of transparency and, and commitment to safety. Um, there were lots of people who said, you know, that kind of destroyed a lot of people's faith in the J&J &J vaccine and how many lives could have been saved because this is an extremely rare side effect. Um, you know, I, I certainly can appreciate that point of view, but the, the point of the safety system is to detect these kinds of rare things. 
and uh, especially since it affected your clinical decision making, right? It was important to get that information to, into the hands of clinicians, and and so um, that's you know unfortunate. It's an unfortunate consequence, but you have to be committed to. Um, sharing what you know, even if it's bad, about a vaccine. And that's what these systems are designed to do. Absolutely. And it's a rare side effect. My husband got the J&J vaccine. I sleep fine. I don't worry about him. And uh, and the nice thing is they got that that side effect out. So we were all ready. So, I mean, it's a very treatable illness. It's rare and it's scary, but it's treatable. And if you get your doctors lined up and ready to treat it, we were all ready to treat it. We had our neurocritical care you know, director kind of refresh all of us on what to look for and what to be alert for. And I guess I guarantee none of us will ever see it because it's so rare, but we're ready. You're ready for that zebra to come along. <laughs> exactly. Here come the hoofbeats. <laughs> Destiny, do you have any ideas on kind of how to communicate about, you know, I guess I'm not going to, obviously theirs doesn't really fall into the realm of like the conspiracies, but it kind of is one of those things where it's, there's just this idea that all of us doctors and scientists are just hiding something or something, you know, that we just don't want to let somebody know. And then, you know, there's this cloud of reasons why, and, you know, people are saying, well, why is, you know, everything from George Soros is pushing it to it's profits for big pharma to someone released this virus on the world to make money from drugs. And, and um, where's that kind of cloud come from? That's a great, great question that has a very complicated answer, but I'm going to try to do, to answer it in a way that helps um, do two things. One is the purpose of this conversation as I see it <clears throat> isn't just about kind of sharing knowledge with folks who are listening um, sort of for its own sake. It's it's how to then take that knowledge and, and use it to have conversations with your friends and loved ones and patients about vaccination. So, um, so it's helpful sometimes to think about, um, you know, for example, you could, you could point out that people in general tend to just not do well with small numbers in general, like most people don't, their brains just don't, don't understand them very well. They tend to, you know, we, we in general tend to kind of round down, like if we see something really small, we round down or we round up depending on kind of how that number is being perceived. And so um, there, there's all kinds of unpredictable things that happen in people's brains when you start talking about small numbers. And we saw this especially early on in the pandemic when we were talking about OG COVID um, uh, uh, and the transmission rates, right? And the death rates. So a lot of times folks were talking about, oh, it's a 2% death rate or a 3% or a 1%, depending on how you're calculating that, right? And people were, you know, a lot of people were like, well, that's not very much <laughs> because in the context of their lives, like a one and a two sounds small, right? But then when you multiply that by millions of people, hundreds of millions, billions of people, that's a huge number of people who are going to die, right? But people don't intuitively, most people, unless they've been trained to approach numbers in a more um, scientific way or mathematical way, they don't intuitively make those leaps. Um, and so we have to anticipate that as communicators and hopefully find ways to deliver that information in a, in a way that is going to be less likely to be misunderstood. Um, and I could have a lot, kind of a se separate chat, hopefully involving some kind of festive adult beverage about what we could have done differently <laughs> when we were sharing different things with the public about numbers and science and things like that, including some of that JJ um, work, which I agree with you that the radical transparency is really a, a sacrifice that's made for hopefully and, you know, uh, building trust with people. But again, depending on what's already there in the cultural landscape, it can have the opposite effect depending, and we can do things to mitigate that. But anyway, so with that said, I think it's also important, and if you don't mind, I can take a little bit of time to sort of talk about pandemics in general and sort of vaccine hesitancy in general and sort of what the cultural context is for this, because we can always talk about things at the individual level. And I think a lot of times there's a tendency to want to do that because, um, you know, that's sort of where the behavior is presenting itself is like somebody's doing or not doing something, but there's all this extra backdrop that's helpful for us in terms of planning a strategy for reaching people and influencing that behavior. Um, so the issue of vaccine hesitancy broadly is, you know, it occurs at these multiple levels. It happens at the individual level and with regard to cognitive processes, which we're gonna talk about, it, but it also has this kind of cultural context or historical context too. So you know, we've seen, you know, we've seen vaccine hesitancy in steady state times, like pre-pandemic, we saw the, the growth of vaccine hesitancy, right? 
But in the context of pandemics, I think it's more specific to this conversation, throughout history, we've seen people resisting things like wearing masks, for instance, over like throughout time vaccination or inoculation as it was before. I mean, Ben Franklin, who's one of our historical figures that we hold up as being brilliant and intelligent and innovative, he lost a child to smallpox. Four-year-old child decided not to inoculate him and it was one of his life's greatest regrets. Um, so here's a situation where you have somebody who's very in the, you know, in the upper echelon of society that probably among the most educated people in the whole world at the time, and he still made the choice not to, and he lost his child as a result, right? So it's important to recognize that pandemics are a time of great, great life or death uncertainty. And usually it means there's been some new disease that's come out or it's been brought from somewhere else and people have to figure out what to do about it. A lot of times the measures that are required to control the disease are unfamiliar so in some way, or at least in day-to-day -day life. And it's easy to look back on history and say, oh my gosh, we knew about masking and people didn't do it. But there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of rumors. There's always opportunists trying to profit from panic of all kinds, right? So there's always gonna be somebody putting messages out there that are not trustworthy, right? And even the stuff from trustworthy sources you know, just by virtue of trial and error and a brand new emergent threat, there are things that don't work <laughs> or turn out to be counterproductive, right? That actually happen. And so we often look back and say, like, why didn't people do the thing when really, and I think we can even think about this in terms of the early days of the pandemic ourselves and find some some ways to kind of access some empathy for the people who are still, who are stuck if we think about this place of, um, you know, so much information, many of it is, much of it is wrong. You know, some of it is nefarious. It's true, those things happen and those things are existing. And so how then, you know, what is that, how does that emo, uh, informational environment or the emotional and informational environment setting the stage for people to be absorbing the information and deciding what to do with it in a productive way? Um, and all that context is really important because it influences how our brains in, in our brains, how that works to process the information, store it and make use of it. Um, so that's sort of the broad, broad context that I'll set. Um, and if you want, I can talk a little bit more about sort of the cognition side in a bit, but if you have any questions about that. Well, no, I think that's helpful. And I think also naming it can be helpful. Like just, um, like, I think one way to help you know, dispel the idea that, you know, I'm getting some, you know, kickback check from Anthony Fauci every time I say someone has COVID or whatever people think is happening when they, you know, tell me I'm lying to them in the ICU where I'm just like, I don't, I don't know how to answer this, like, is to kind of acknowledge that, yeah, I mean, medical practice has not always been on the up and up, you know, historically, like we've done horrific things from Tuskegee to, you know, I mean, it's, there's hor true horrors out there. So to acknowledge that that has happened, but to try to build a relationship that I, I swear I'm not doing that is, is hard for people to kind of necessarily accept. How do you, do you want to kind of walking us through like how you kind of like the steps you sure. take kind of trying to build that bridge? Yeah, absolutely. And I will throw out there, you really cannot understate the value of that acknowledgement PS in terms of your ability to connect with your patients, because part of what's happening for people <laughs> is this sort of almost this dissonance or this, um, you know, this sense that what's being told to them is not lining up with their lived experience in some way. So when we, first of all, um, it's helpful to also recognize that the people who are doing a lot of the communicating come from their own positionality in society, right? Like people who are, um, you know, coming from a, a science place, or coming from a medical place or political place, like they do sit in a particular, uh, you know, sort of space in society. Maybe they they tend to be more educated. Maybe they tend to have they tend to have certain kinds of beliefs, values that have put them in the job that they have. Like, uh, you know, wanting to help people, but also having access to higher education. And some of those things can help us better connect with certain segments of people. But some of those things can also sort of set us up to not connect. And I'll give you a really specific example because I don't want to forget it. Um, that might seem a little bit random, but I promise I'll, I'll pull the thread all the way through. Um, so I, when Gigi was just, when Dr. Gronval was just talking about how the immune system works and how, you know, even just describing how the, you know, these, the, the mRNA is coming in and it's educating the immune system. 
education is a is a value, right? Education is something that some people have a, a lot higher value for than other people do. Some people value high hard work. Maybe everybody values education to a certain degree, but there are other values that are higher than that for them, right? Um, so depending on who you're talking to, um, you want to first sort of understand what is their sort of value belief identity framework. Um, and the reason for that is because in times of great uncertainty, when everything feels like a flux, and just think about like the very beginning of the pandemic as a great example, when it, it just like, no one wants to feel like they're hanging in the wind, right? Like something else happens and then they're changing and then now we're doing this and now we're doing that. Like it's a very uncomfortable situation for people to feel like their whole sort of way of, of being has been upended. And so they very quickly want to establish some cognitive structures that help them make sense of the world and define their action for, for behavior. So if you kind of think of these as like mental containers or mental structures, um, you know, like a fishing tackle box or something, right? That like you're sort of putting in new information into and storing it in a way and then and making use of it in some way. Um, and so those containers are made out of things that are more stable than just like how I feel in the morning, right? <laughs> They're made out of things like beliefs and value and identity, things that are more enduring, right? And what happens is once those things are constructed, the information gets placed into them. And if something doesn't fit, it just gets left out or it's denied or suppressed or deprioritized or something, which is part of where we're seeing people who are saying, I'm saying this thing and this person, it doesn't seem to matter to them at all. And it matters so much to me and it doesn't matter to them. How is this not influencing their decision at all? It's because their mental structures aren't accommodating that information. So what we can do is we can continue to sort of pound the drum based on our own values. And then people will just get more and more alienated and feel more and more frustrated, right? And see that dissonance in your case, Erica, between wait a minute, everybody's telling me to trust my doctor, trust my doctor, trust my doctor. I have, you know, I may have personally had a pretty negative experience with a doctor before, like most of us have, right? Most of us have had something, especially if you're a woman and you've had a child, Lord knows you've had some negative experience where a doctor maybe didn't listen to what you were saying or didn't he hear your experience or something like that. So you have lived experience that, that counteracts this very oversimplified narrative. And it, what happens is there's a gap then. And within that gap, you can have a lot of misinformation come in. You can have uh, you know, overly politicized uh, messages that get in there in that gap between what we're saying and what this person knows to be true. And those messages often are designed to validate that person's experience, to validate those beliefs and values that they have. And so once, and once those structures get solidified, it's very difficult to change them which actually brings us to kind of where we are in the conversation today and why it's different from where we were in the conversation at the beginning of the pandemic. Because in the beginning of the pandemic, all of our containers, all of our mental containers were obliterated. <laughs> and we all had to sort of start that, we all had to decide, how am I gonna make decisions today? Like which, you know, what am I gonna let my kids do today? Like all that kind of stuff, almost fresh every day. And then over time, we've then now come to rely on these containers. And from a communications perspective, we are very rarely ever, unfortunately, given the budget or the time to really change someone's containers. <laughs> like, let's talk about, uh, you know, the issue of, you know, like racism, for example, in the medical establishment, right? We do, there is history with Tuskegee with, I mean, if you don't know anything about this, you should definitely read up on Henrietta Lacks. That will give you a great primer, but you're not gonna reach, you know, grandma, you know, Martha, you, you don't you, you don't have time to fix racism in order to get to grandma Martha and get her to, to get a vaccine, right? So you've got to figure out a way to connect with her uh, uh, working around some of these barriers and within the containers that people currently have in a strategic way that isn't a brute force approach, which is sort of where people have gotten stuck. So you have all these well-meaning people who are trying to have these conversations and they're getting really frustrated and it honestly, like, let's take a moment to just, how hard is it to have those conversations when it's almost like you're finding out that somebody you love really doesn't share your values. It's like a grieving experience, right? It's like, who is this person? How are they not vaccinated, right? It feels very personal. 
And it's because it is, because your relationship with them is what matters the very most. So I wanna, I know that's a long way around it, but I wanna make sure to acknowledge that first and foremost, what people are experiencing is real. And to the degree that we are frozen in our own messages, those messages resonated for us. That doesn't mean they're gonna resonate for other people. And first we have to understand their mental containers and their values. And we need to find some common ground with them uh, in order to begin those conversations. Otherwise they're destined to fail. Absolutely. You know, I keep reading these terrible stories um, about women who, um, and I also, I talk to a lot of people who are vaccine hesitant and, um, and uh, many of them are women who are concerned about their fertility um, or parents of teen girls who are concerned about their fertility in the future. And, um, you know, and there is no, um, the vaccines have been examined ex for exactly this, this purpose, um, you know, this, um, to look at this issue and the vaccines do not affect fertility. And it's important for physicians to be very clear about that. And not only that, but just when it comes to uh, people who are, who are actually pregnant, um, it's so important that they get vaccinated. Um, and, and this is just as a, you know, in the immunology sort of question, when when you have a like genetically foreign being growing inside you, um, your immune system is uh, is definitely wonky. Even if you are um, a healthy person, you have to your immune system um, has to undergo some changes so that you can allow this genetically foreign being to grow inside you. And so, even if you're a healthy person, a young person. Um, you know, a marathon runner or whatever it is, um, your immune system needs the boost of the vaccine so that you can fight off this virus. And, um, and so it's really protecting your health and your baby's health um, to get the vaccine because uh, without it, um, there are just too many, uh, too many terrible consequences. And my, um, my experience with this is, uh, so in, in 2009, when we were um, undergoing the whole H1N1 issues um, and women were also, pregnant women were also at a much higher risk for, for negative outcomes, as they say, um, when it comes to the flu. I was pregnant, I was very pregnant and, um, and I was like terrified. Um, but, you know, I was looking at the data and my OB was very frank with me. Oh, like we lost another one, you know, last week, that type of thing. And, um, and the vaccine was like slow to arrive. They didn't have the kind of tiered access that they did with this uh, vaccine rollout. And like, I was just waiting in line and I'm hugely pregnant and everybody's pretending not to notice that I'm pregnant. I'm like, can I just get to the front of the line? And, you know, and, uh, and, and so, I mean, I definitely, you know, but I had friends who were in the same boat who um, were fearful of getting that flu shot basically. And um, because they didn't want to do anything to mess up their pregnancy. And, um, but the, the, the data is not on that that side, you know, it's actually much more protective to, to take, you know, to, to, to be healthy and take those steps um, and it will help your baby and potentially could help your baby even after the baby's born. So, so that's, that's the only thing that I would add. Thank you so much for saying that. The most heartbreaking cases we have right now are our pregnant women. And as an ICU doctor and a mom, I have three kids. It's, I remember early on having a young woman who she was one of the ones talking about the testing issues, you know, four negative nasal swabs. And we finally sent a deep ET aspirate and it was positive. Um, and she was so sick and I had the OBs up there and we we're thinking, gosh, should we prone her? Cause it's life-saving, right. To flip someone over on their stomach, but what is that going to do? Like, how do we do this? And, and, you know, I wish that had been the last case, you know what I mean? But then we, you know, it's so interesting working in the ICU. Cause I, I feel like I start seeing these trends and then, you know, I always say, well, it's anecdotes, but this is, I think going to get confirmed. And sure enough, I mean, just the outcomes, you know, we'd see, and it would just be heartbreaking, you know, doing C-sections in the ICU and a woman who's traked on a ventilator and so mm -hmm. weak that she can't hold her baby afterwards and, and, you know, and missing the whole, you know, sweet newborn time, right. Cause the baby's off in the NICU and the mom's in the ICU paralyzed and sedated and on COVID precautions. And it's, 
it's heartbreaking. So the, um, just the, the importance of the vaccination. And I think that's just one of those things is I see every day, I mean, every day, how horrific this is, but I think there's a lot of people who it seems so remote. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that's where science can kind of give us the numbers to let us, to help people not be an anecdote or a statistic. And I think it's just, you know, so hard to communicate it, you know? Well, it's hard. And when you're pregnant, you're, you know, as even if you are educated in this area, it's like you are highly sensitive to any negative information that might be about anything that you're doing. You know, you're just highly receptive and, um, and the anti people who are anti-vaccine are very aware of that, you know? And so it's, um, all, a lot of these things, you know, are kind of like, half truths and, um, you know, and they, they really can get you in, if, if you're super concerned and if, uh, so that's, I mean, that, that, that's a, it's just a really big challenge. And, you know, the people who are push, you know, who have the scientific facts don't have the money to push out those messages, you know, that the, the anti-vaxxers do. And, and it's, uh, it's just really, it's really challenging. Well, and you actually make a great point because this is really the point of entry for the, hopefully the people listening, because I mean, study after study after study shows that people tend to go to friends and relatives and neighbors for risk information across all kinds of risks. They tend to value that information higher. So that means that, you know, we can't, we can't afford, like I was saying, communications wise to, to do the, the brute force method. So that means we need people to actually stay engaged in these conversations with their friends and family, because there is so much potential for changing minds, especially, or I shouldn't even say changing minds, because my whole mantra is about changing behavior without changing people's minds, because most folks don't have the time or the energy at this stage to try to shift these big worldview ideas that like, oh, the medical establishment is flawed. P.S. It is like, don't try to change that mind. It's wrong. Of course it's flawed, you know, or, or, or changing somebody's perception about the government. Like, God, if I have to get, you know, uncle Larry to believe the government isn't out to get him in order to get his vaccine, like it's never going to happen. So instead, how can we use our relationships and our shared, you know, common ground experiences like Dr. Gronval was just describing her own personal experience being really afraid about getting a vaccine that is going to sing in terms of your ability to, to actually shift behavior so much more than another fact sheet we don't need facts at this stage everybody has facts right now it's about relationships it's about that feeling of connection and empathy and maybe a few really sharp facts that are really going to help kind of connect the dots for people which I think we've really gotten today but it's really also about that connection point. And that means that we have to kind of humble ourselves in the conversation and not come into it as if we have all the answers, but rather that there's a joint, you know, there's a joint relational piece that needs to happen. Um, so. Absolutely. Well, I wanna thank both of you for your time talking with me today. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add? But thank you so much for the opportunity and uh, and Destiny, it's great to see you again. And um, I hope, uh, let me know if there's anything in the future that I can help out with. No, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. And I'm going to be having Destiny back to talk more about how to have these conversations because I know it's an area of my life where I need a lot of help. And um, hopefully this will be helpful for all of you. So stay tuned for an upcoming bonus episode. I found this conversation so helpful. We physicians often need help communicating more clearly to our patients and communities with less jargon. Often to become doctors, we have to immerse ourselves at various points in research, lab work, and science, participating in journal clubs, critiquing different studies, working in the slow incremental process of science to understand medical studies and trust whether we will be willing to put a new medication in the bodies of our patients, our loved ones, or ourselves. Our perspective is also informed by what we see every day at work. In the ICU, I see when something like the flu or COVID, which many people blow off, absolutely takes down a formerly healthy person, rendering them critically ill. I also empathize so much with Dr. Gronval's story about being pregnant during a flu pandemic. I was pregnant throughout the flu season while working 80 hours a week as an ICU fellow, and I remember getting my flu shot as soon as possible. I felt even more relief when I received my COVID-19 vaccine, and I struggled to understand how others might not feel that way. Reminds me of something my dad used to say to me, Erica, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. I am so passionate about helping people feel comfortable about vaccination. 
by ensuring accurate information is available, but it's also important to understand and respect others' perspectives so we can all get through this. That is why I'm having Destiny back for a bonus episode around communication about the COVID-19 vaccine and vaccines in general. These conversations are the most important ones we may be having in the upcoming year, especially the upcoming holiday season, which was so lethal last year. We've already lost one in 500 Americans. The scale of trauma and tragedy is already too high, and we have to do our part in our own lives to extend the umbrella of protection and slow down the rise of the next deadly variant. So what can you do? Well, get your COVID-19 vaccine if you haven't already done so. Hopefully this podcast has helped reassure you of their safety. Check the podcast show notes or post for this page for more information on where you can get reliable vaccine information and where you can get the shot. Also, feel free to reach out to me if you have more questions. You can send a message through the website, you can DM through Facebook or Instagram, whatever would be helpful. Reach out to your loved ones about the importance of vaccination. Feel free to share this podcast or share what you've learned, especially on how to communicate more effectively. You should also learn more about why there may be very legitimate hesitancy about the medical community, vaccines, and scientific research by learning about the history of the Tuskegee experiment, for example, Henrietta Lacks, and more. I think medical apartheid is a vital read for all in healthcare. Finally, consider a donation to the American Lung Association, who is trying to help share accurate information about COVID-19 vaccination and fund research and advocacy. We're coming to the end of the podcast. For more information about the importance of healthy air, please visit airhealthourhealth.org and follow on Instagram and Facebook. Remember, if you do nothing else, don't light things on fire and breathe them into your lungs. This applies to tobacco, diesel fuel, forests, and more. Thanks for joining me today. I am a full-time physician and not an epidemiologist or public health expert. This podcast is for your education and entertainment, but should not be interpreted as individual medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare team to determine what is right for your health. Thank you and stay safe.